It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Now, here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. Confucius once said, The expectations of life depend upon diligence. The mechanic that would perfect his work must first sharpen his tools. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. And joining me as always is Jonathan, my co-host for more than two decades. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. So, Jonathan, what's our topic for today's episode? Well, Rick, our question is, what does Jesus expect from us? And our theme text is found in Matthew chapter 25, verse 2. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. (laughs) Nothing like dropping right in the middle of a subject, huh? (laughs) (laughs) So coming up in today's podcast, we're going to be talking about the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. And it's, it's a mystery. Christians have all kinds of opinions on what it means, but they all seem to overlook one important thing. Find out what that one thing is in about 15 minutes. The reality of this parable is startling. In about 30 minutes, we uncover the major detail that puts the whole story in order. So does this story really tell us what Jesus expects from us? Yes, absolutely it does, and we put those pieces together in about 45 minutes. But first, let's lay a foundation. Jesus did a lot of teaching in parables. He chose this method primarily for the purpose of hiding his real meaning from the public in fulfillment of a prophecy in Isaiah. Occasionally, he spoke a parable meant for his disciples, and the story of the wise and foolish virgins is such a case. We know the stories about some of the virgins being prepared and the other virgins were not. So, is that the point? Turns out, This just scratches the surface. This parable was a story to prepare them for the coming centuries. More than that, it was a story that Jesus used to outline what those who would be faithful to him would be like. This parable not only describes the character of the faithful, it is a major prophecy that has reached its fulfillment in our day. Rick, the most important question to begin with is, Why did Jesus speak this parable when he spoke it? Okay, you always have to know why Jesus says what he says, because once you figure out the why, everything else comes into play, and that's why we've got to look at the why and the when. So this parable directly follows the Lord's great prophecy of Matthew chapter 24. In that prophecy, Jesus answers three questions posed to him by his disciples, and this parable which is the very beginning of Matthew 25, is an outgrowth of his answers. Now remember, back in the original manuscripts, there were no chapters and verses, so Matthew 24 and 25 are really all part of the same dialogue. So Jonathan, let's go to Matthew 24, 1 to 3 to get some context here. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple building to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming 
end of the end of the age. Okay, so there's three big questions. And the first question, tell us when these things will happen. I mean, they're, they're looking at the, the temple and the, the beauty of the temple. And Jesus says, hey, do you know that this is going to be destroyed? So the first... That that's must be a scary thought going through all the disciples' minds. Oh, no. Yeah, when's this going to happen? You know, and it sounds like almost like well, it must be the end of the world because the temple was magnificent. And so they tack on the other two questions. What will be the signs of your coming? The word actually means presence. And of the end of the age. So there's a lot that they ask him. Through prophecy, Jesus knew it would be a long time before the final two questions would be fulfilled. Now, we know that the temple was actually destroyed in AD 70. That was right. not a long time. So Jesus prepares them for that, but then he's preparing them for his return and the end of the age. And he knows, because he's studied the prophecies, that this is a long, long pro projection of time. We know that from Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. I will stand on my guard post and the station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. It's interesting that he says how he may reply when I'm reproved because Habakkuk was just yelling at God just before this, saying, God, have you noticed the evil in this world? I mean, are you paying attention? You know, <laughs> so he says, I know I really kind of shouldn't have said that. I'm going to stand there. <laughs> I'm going to listen to God's response because I know he's going to direct me. And what, is it, what, is it, what does he say? Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tables, that the one who reads it may run. So he's saying, okay, there's this vision about the coming of the end times. It needs to be written down. So those who see can be energized to always stay focused. And then, and then verse 3 is the big, the big piece with the timing. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. So even though it's going to take a long time, even though it tarries, it comes exactly on time, but the on time is not the time that I want the time to be. My time and God's time are not the same time. And that's kind of the way we've got to look at this. So Jesus goes through Matthew 24. As he begins to wrap up his prophecy in that chapter, he inserts cautions about maintaining awareness through the passage of time. Habakkuk told us about that. He knows his followers will need to stay the course when all looks hopeless. Let's look at Matthew 24, kind of near the end of the chapter, verses 42 to 44. And Rick, when I read this, I'm going to be adding uh, a little bit of context on who's speaking and he, who's being spoken to as we read this. Gotcha. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house, Satan, had known at what time of the night the thief, Jesus, was coming, he, Satan, would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. So you're saying that Jesus is a thief in this scripture. He is, and that's very hard to <laughs> swallow, but yes. <laughs> because he's coming to take the world back from Satan. And so he comes at a time and in a way that you just don't expect. That's what Jesus is telling his followers there 
in Matthew 24, and that's what we are supposed to be learning here at this end of the age. And we are at the time of Jesus' return. There's no question about that. Jesus begins this parable, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, right at the end of Matthew 24. Matthew 25.1 is the first phrase that introduces this particular parable. Then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to. Okay, it's the kingdom of heaven will be compared to. This can be confusing to a lot of folks as we look at this. When we examine the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, we can see that Jesus uses it to describe the context of the development of his true followers throughout the age in which the gospel is preached. So this, we're talking over 2,000 years back when yes. Jesus was first here. Yes. So when it says the kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of God is like, he's talking about that whole period of time and the development of true Christianity. Up till today. Yes, exactly. And there's much more in the bonus material as to why we believe that to be so. So check that out. So Jonathan, we're just setting the groundwork now. What's our parable preparation here? Jesus was intent on warning and protecting his followers with this parable. This would be a prophetic lesson and it would also contain many practical lessons as well. Okay, it's going to be a prophetic lesson. It's going to be a practical lesson. There's a lot to this particular parable right here and right now. You know, it's impressive to see what Jesus knew and how he taught, but it's breathtaking to see how much he cared. With the reason for the parable made clear, how do we know who the player represents in real life? Our YouTube channel has a lot going on. Go to ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Featuring new releases every week. Check out our playlists like CQ Kids, Moments That Matter, and CQ Bible 101. Plus, we have even more new series content planned to roll out soon. So stay tuned at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Interpreting parables is important, but it can be tricky. Among Christians, there are a wide variety of existing interpretations for this particular story. As we look at the symbols in the story, we're going to focus on explaining why we adhere to the understanding that we've been given. And Jonathan, I just want to mention that, you know what, we, you know, we do a lot of Bible study, but there's a lot of things that we were taught and then we went and proved for ourselves. That's right. This is one of those things that we were taught and then we went and proved for ourselves. Just so we, you know, everybody understands, wow, these guys really came up with this. No, we didn't. <laughs> we're, we're, just, <laughs> we're just reproving it from Scripture, okay? So with the prophecy complete, Matthew 24, and some preliminary warnings in place, we already touched on that, the actual story of the wise and foolish virgins begins. And in the first four verses, there's a lot of detail that's put in place that we're going to need to understand. So Matthew 25, 1 through 4. Then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil and vessels along with their lamps. Okay, so there are five primary symbols that are shown to us in this parable. What are they? Well, the first is ten virgins. Okay. The second, bridegroom. Mm -hmm. The third, lamps. Mm -hmm. The fourth, oil. And lastly, vessels. Okay, so you have these five pieces of information that are going to unlock a very important story. So let's go through each of them and define what we believe they mean according to Scripture. So with the ten virgins, 
Um, we, we believe them to represent those called by God through Christ to be joined with Jesus. They represent all spirit-begotten Christians throughout the entire gospel age. This is important because a lot of Christians look at this and they, and they, 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 they narrow it down to a specific period of time, but we think it is all-encompassing here. And the idea of virgins, let's look at 2 Corinthians 11, verses 2 to 3. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Well, Rick, how can these virgins represent the bride of Christ? They're not uh, clearly, uh, you know, talked about in this parable, are they? Okay, so what we're talking about is ten virgins, but we're not talking about the bride. No, we're okay. not. So you're talking about a bridegroom cr- coming, and we always look at the true church as the bride of Christ. So, like, why would we say that these others are representative of the true church? And this is an important question, Okay. And there's a lot of reasons for getting into that. Let, let's take a look, um, go, go a little bit more deep into, the, into some of the aspects of the parable, then we're going to come back to that. All right. And what we're going to be doing, Rick, is talking about prophetic meanings and, pra- um, pra- pra- prophetic meanings and practical applications gotcha. uh, throughout the podcast. So for our first question, Rick, is what was Jesus teaching um, And what was his prophetic meaning? Okay, so in relation to the ten virgins, Jesus is teaching that, first of all, let's realize there is no bride mentioned in this parable at all. It's just about the bridegroom and the ten virgins. you got to say, well, why? And it's because this is a story to represent the development process of the true church over 2,000 years. And you say, "But, but they're not the bride. No, they're not supposed to be. It's a development process parable. For instance, the wheat and the tares parable illustrates a parallel lesson as it shows the corruption of the true church with false systems over the entire gospel age. You can't say, well, I'm one of those grains of wheat. No, you're not. It's the the grains of wheat collectively are the true church over the whole age of the gospel. Same thing here. Well, Rick, the true church is sometimes represented by good soil producing good plants, sheep, fish in a net, stewards, etc., each of these illustrations is focusing on a specific point. Soil and plants represent growing in Christ. Sheep pictures following after Christ. Fish in a net means being called from the world to Christ. Stewards are equal to the responsibility on Christ's behalf. And here, virgins represent uncompromised loyalty to Christ over time. Okay, see, this is really important. Why do we think these ten virgins, even though they're not the bride, do represent the bride of Christ in the big picture? Because it's showing one part of what's required of all who are faithful. And I'm glad you brought all those other parables up. Soil and plants means growing in Christ. It doesn't mean that you're, you're, you're a, a seed planted and you grow in, you know, in, in, in the good soil. It, that's not what it—it's a picture to show growing in Christ. Sheep— you know, the true church is not literal sheep. I mean, there's all kinds <laughs> of sheep. It means a follower, one who is, is, is so in tune with the shepherd's voice. Fish in a net. I mean, when you talk about a kind of a really, I don't know, I don't, I, do you like that picture, really? No, I don't. <laughs> but, you know, it's an important picture because 
being called out of the world, being plucked out of the world to follow Christ. You know, stewards, responsibility. So virgins is about uncompromised loyalty. That's why the ten virgins represent the true followers of Christ throughout the whole age. So, uh, Jonathan, let's go to, you, you, we, we talked about the prophetic meaning. What about the practical application? What does Jesus want from us? What's the practical application here? Well, he wants us to be chaste. We are virgins. Our life loyalty is reserved for only one special relationship. This same requirement has existed for over 2,000 years. Okay. To, he wants us to be chaste. It doesn't mean somebody's after you. To be chaste means to be pure. To be pure, that's right. It's an old word, but I really like the word because it appears in Scripture, and the idea of a chaste virgin is one who is unsullied by the world. And that's what we need to be looking at, to be these chaste virgins, to be pure for the sake of Christ. Second Timothy, I'm sorry, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Spotless and blameless. Have a purity. That's one of the big lessons. That's what Jesus wants from us. And part of the lesson of the parable of the uh, wise and foolish virgins is this spotlessness, this blamelessness. It's interesting that there are 10 virgins. We're not going to take a lot of time on this, but Jonathan, there's some good commentary from Matthew Henry on this. It was a custom sometimes used among the Jews on that occasion that the bridegroom came, attended with his friends late in the night to the house of the bride where she expected him, attended with her bridesmaids, whom upon notice given of the bridegroom's approach were to go out with lamps in their hands to light him into the house with ceremony and formality in order to the celebrating of the nuptials with great mirth. And some think that on these occasions, they had usually 10 virgins for the Jews never held a synagogue circumcised, kept the Passover or contracted marriage, but 10 persons at least were present. Boaz, when he married Ruth, he had 10 witnesses found in Ruth four verse two. So it's interesting that the number 10 gives you that sense of completeness of important ceremonial things. And so we think that when we look at this, we can say, yeah, there's a sense of completeness that, that you have all who were true followers of, of Christ represented in this. And again, we look at it as a time frame kind of a situation over a long period of time, over the past 2,000 years since Jesus was here. So that's when we see the 10 virgins, that's what we think of, all of the followers of Christ f for all time at this point. So now let's go on to the bridegroom. This is the easiest symbol as it represents Jesus himself. So Rick, what was uh, Jesus teaching? What's the prophetic meaning? Okay, so th this one's simpler. Jesus would return. This is what he, we believe he's teaching. He would return, and it was imperative for his followers to be looking for him. They needed to be watching for him. That was a key, key factor in their lives. And, and I like the way you to explain it, in anticipation yeah. of him. Yeah, yeah, and, and you're right, and that, that adds a whole lot, because looking is like, you know, okay, well, you kind of peek out the window, oh, okay, no, not here yet. <laughs> not here yet. No, 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 that's not it, that's not it. It's that anticipation of, he's got to be coming, where is he? You know, that, that sense of that need to, to have that fulfilled, it, 
that anticipation is important. Second Corinthians 11.2 on Jesus as the bridegroom. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Okay, present you, betrothed you to one husband. Okay, that's the bridegroom. Again, a chaste virgin to Christ, a pure individual for Christ. That's the way this, this picture is unfolding. Revelation 19.7 is also another really good scripture that gives us a sense of the, uh, of the importance of the picture of the bridegroom. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. You know, and it's interesting to me that, you know, sometimes we get all tied up and, well, it's got to be very specific in the picture, you know, and you do you have to be the, the, the bride, not the virgins and all that. Well, this talks, the Revelation Scripture talks about the marriage of the Lamb, okay? So you have to understand that pictures are used to show us scriptural truth. And we've got to be willing to take those pictures and apply it to the scriptural truth that we see. Chaste virgins, it makes perfect sense. So we've got some of the prophetic aspect here. So Jonathan, what does Jesus want from us? What's the practical application here? Well, the ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom, not only are we to be chaste, first of all, and then we are chosen, secondly, we therefore must be that chosen one who does the right thing as instructed. All ten virgins were chosen. This is important. All of them were chosen, and that's why we think they all represent the true followers of Christ. The Spirit begotten, absolutely. Right. So you're chaste, pure, and chosen. Let's not underestimate the value of being chosen, because with being chosen comes the gift of God's Spirit. And we're going to get to that in a, in a few minutes. Ephesians 1.4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Okay, holy and blameless before him. Chosen, that's the point. That's the important thing here. So when we see the bridegroom, we see it representing Jesus, and we see that part of the lesson is the fact of these virgins all being chosen to be part of this, waiting for his return. It's sobering to realize the responsibility of being chosen. We need only choose one path, the path of loyalty. Now that we have the people in the parable straight, what do the lamps oil, and vessels symbolize. It's been a privilege and exciting interacting with our listeners all over the world. Reach out to us anytime at ChristianQuestions.com. In addition to always continuing the conversation on our website, in social media, and our YouTube channel. Learn more about becoming a Christian Questions ambassador. There are several impactful ways you can help us continue to spread the gospel message. Go to ChristianQuestions.com and click on Support CQ in the top navigation menu. Join our incredible team of volunteers and find out more. Now back to Rick and Jonathan. Understanding any parable is based on two things. First is knowing why Jesus told the story, and second is getting the symbols right. We know the story was told as a warning that Jesus' return would take a long time. And we know now the virgins are his true followers. So now let's see what tools they were given access to and what they did with those tools. So we're going to get back to the parable, Matthew 25, verses 
two to four. We already read these verses, but we've got to kind of review them and pick up on the details that we just glossed over thus far. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Okay, so you've got the five foolish, five prudent. Took, uh, the, we, we've got several symbols here. We've already defined the virgins. We've got lamps. We have oil. We've got these flasks or vessels. So, Jonathan, first, let's deal with the lamps. Right. Rick, what is Jesus teaching prophetically? What is the meaning? Okay, the prophetic meaning. We believe the lamps are the Word of God given to Jesus' followers throughout the long age of the gospel to light their way. And I think that's a symbol that most Christians kind of can, can come to an easy agreement on, because it is a pretty obvious symbol when you look at the actual parable, and then you look at other scriptures, especially Psalm 119, 105. That kind of like, if you want to ever nail something down with this, this is the scripture <laughs> to do it. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Yeah, there you go. Okay, <laughs> so we, we look at it as the word of God. Now, this is interesting because the word of God in the hands of those who are chaste and those who are chosen. Second Peter 1, 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. So that's, that's really kind of interesting because it's talking about until the day dawns. I mean, they're waiting through the night. You're looking at this prophetic word as a lamp shining in a dark place. It, it, I mean, it's all pretty big here. And, and lamps. You know, we might picture a lantern in yeah. our day. But that's actually not what it looks like. You know, if you ever remember Aladdin's lamp, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> don't like to use the analogy, but it looks like that, but maybe a little short, uh, squattier. And so it has a handle. It has an opening in the middle to pour the oil. And, and the spout has that wick where the light comes from. So it, you'd have to envision that. While, while we're reading this. So, and, and that's important. And, and there'll be a picture of that in, in, the, uh, in the rewind. So you take a, take a look at that because it's just, it's good to see what you're actually talking about. Okay, so prophetic meaning, lamps, the word of God. I think it's, it's a pretty straightforward. So, so Jonathan, let's get to the practical part. What does Jesus want from us? What's the practical application? Be equipped. As a loyal and chosen follower, have God's word always in hand to show you the way. So having the lamp in the hand of these ten virgins is saying you're equipped with the ability to see the way because you've got God's word in your hand. That's a powerful, powerful thought for every one of us as Christians, and it's a powerful responsibility as well. 1 Timothy 4, 6. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Nourished so, on—oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. So obviously that is the word of God so plainly. Yeah, you, you, it, it, it's hard to, to, to get away from that. Nourished— on the words of faith, and of sound doctrine. So it's not just, okay, I have a Bible, and I read the Bible. There's much more to it. It's the understanding of the Bible, and that's going to be, be shown to us a little bit more as we go through this particular parable. So the lamps really are the Word of God, and the practical side of that is to be equipped. Next, we're on to oil. What's Jesus teaching? 
and prophetically, what does it mean? Okay, we believe the oil, and this is one of those things that there are several interpretations of, but we believe the oil to represent God's Spirit, as each enlightened follower is given this Spirit to help them discern their way. And to put that to Scripture, we're going to use one Old Testament Scripture and one New Testament Scripture about oil and its importance in the called, chosen, and faithful, if you will. Exodus 30, verses 30 to 32, is about the anointing of Aaron, the high priest, and his sons. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, that they may minister as priests to me. You shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, This shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on anyone's body, nor shall you make any like it in the same proportions. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. It's interesting how sacred that oil was. The mixture used for that anointing was not to be used for anything else. So you get this sense of the sacredness of being called and chosen. You know, that chaste purity that we're talking about. 1 John 20, 21 takes the concept of anointing and brings it into the New Testament. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. So there's a lot here. First of all, this anointing from the Holy One. And again, it's that same sense. What is the anointing? It's God's Spirit. Look at Pentecost. That's what happened the day of Pentecost, when the tongues of fire came down and they were bathed, if you will, in God's Spirit, and they were able to speak in foreign tongues. But, he's saying, but it also has to do with knowing truth. So the oil really gives us a sense that it's a tool for helping us know what's in our hand and how to properly use it. Know the Word of God and how to use it. So prophetically, oil, we believe, represents the Spirit of God that is an enlightenment, working along with God's Word, can absolutely give us direction and, and victory in our experiences. So we've got the prophetic meeting there. What does Jesus want from us now in terms of a practical application? Be energized. We are not only given the word, we are given God's own power and influence to grasp and absorb it. Okay, so the idea of oil is, if we look at it as God's spirit, that is an energizing to a whole new life. I mean, in, in, in Corinthians it says, you know, if you are in Christ, you are a new creature. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. That's a new energy. That's a new life. That's a new being. That's a big thing. Be energized. Oil, it gives us the sense of that's what fuels the lamp. And you know, it's interesting that when Jesus spoke in parables, most of the time he spoke so people wouldn't understand. How is it that Jesus said to his followers they would be able to understand when the comforter comes, the spirit? That's right. You'll be able to. That's the energizing. So the practicality, what does Jesus want from us? Be energized. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Set them apart in God's word, the lamp. Your word is truth. 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. How did Timothy accurately handle the word of truth? By the influence 
of God's Spirit. He couldn't have done it without God's Spirit. So we've got the prophetic side of the oil and the, the practical side, the energizing side. So next let's look at the flasks or the vessels. This is, and this, Jonathan— That's, that's right. This is the dividing line between full and faulty faithfulness. This is a big deal, this detail here. All right. So what is Jesus teaching uh, and what's its prophetic meaning? All right. We believe that these vessels or flasks, depending on the translation, represent the experiences of the true follower that expand the staying power of God's Spirit in their lives. The experiences of the true follower that expand the staying power of God's Spirit in their lives. Throughout all of the Christian age, a common theme of faithfulness has been perseverance in trial. That is repeated again and again and again and again. So the vessel is the collection of those experiences. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 10. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels— so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body. So when you think about it, you know, you've got the lamp with the oil in it, that gives you light. But then you've got the vessel that carries the extra oil. And in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, it says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Earthen vessels, yeah. <laughs> so it gives you this sense that our lives carry the experiences that create faithfulness because of God's Spirit. So there's values with trial, difficulty, struggle, joys, happinesses, blessing— all of it collectively, we're saying. Yes, yes, very much. Incredible, incredible value. These vessels are vessels of sanctified experiences, and we'll get into that a little bit more a little bit later. So we get the sense of the prophetic meaning of the vessels, the experiences of the true follower, you know, through the influence of God's Spirit, filled with God's Spirit in, in those experiences. So what does Jesus want from us now? What's the practical application here? Be mature. Maturity is anticipation that is built upon preparedness and discipline. Use your time wisely now so you don't get caught off guard later. See, it's interesting. The vessels, this is the dividing line between those who are wise and those who are foolish. Because the foolish ones didn't bring along the vessels. And we're suggesting then that the practical experience is the foolish ones were not mature in Christ. They hadn't learned along the way and collected all of that experience, that holy, sanctified experience that the Spirit brings us. Maturity is that collection of experiences, so it can help us in dark times. And literally, that's part of what happens in this particular parable. Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 17. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. So, Rick, how do we use our time wisely? There is some um, sacrifice, I think, that's involved here. We need to avoid focusing on worldly aims, hopes, and ambitions. We have a few comments from a sermon we heard from our good friend Mark. 
It is important to spend time with God in prayer and focus on his word. Also, we should spend time discussing his word with our brethren and sharing our experiences so we can all grow. Take opportunities of service presented to us. A quote Mark read in his discourse, opportunities are never lost. Someone will always be there to take them. So the lesson for us is don't lose opportunities for serving God. And that's exactly what happened with the foolish virgins, because they weren't engaged in the process before the time of waiting. And that's what we need to to understand from a practical standpoint. Maturity, spiritual maturity is critical. We need to grow up. It's great to be a babe in Christ because everything feels good and it's all wonderful. But God is looking for us to grow into adults in Christ so we can deal with the hard things and collect those lessons. We have to be spiritually mature. So the, the maturity is a big, big factor here that's shown by these vessels, and that's the dividing line between those who are prudent or wise and those who were not. Now we can begin to see what Jesus really wants from us. It's not just our attention, it's our everything. Now that we have all the pieces in place, what actually happens in the story? What can we learn? Personal Bible study is so rewarding. So many of our listeners have asked if we could provide an online Bible study course. We're happy to announce a new library of thoughtful questions based on each episode's CQ Rewind show notes. Each study is a compact single page of thought-provoking questions with scripture references and more. These are perfect for your individual study or small groups. Go to ChristianQuestions.com, then click on Bible study in the main menu to get started. What's next in our audio study, Rick? Even though the wise and foolish virgins parable represents the entire gospel age experience, it's a very short story. Lining up the moving parts makes this simple illustration come alive. We've already seen where our difference is between those who are wise and those who are foolish. Now, let's watch it play out by actually going through what happens in the parable. It's interesting, Jonathan, we spent this entire podcast working on what does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? Now we have to look at How does it play out? Now that we've got the pieces, how do they work together? Let's look at Matthew 25, verse 5. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. This is a really important aspect of the parable. And I will tell you, Jonathan, this aspect of the parable is where I I, I believe, personally believe that so many of our Christian friends get, get, get thrown off in terms of trying to understand what it means. But once we look at it scripturally, I think that there's something powerful we can draw from. So, Rick, what is Jesus teaching, and what's the prophetic meaning? Okay. This is about them all getting drowsy and beginning to sleep. And notice he says all of them. Okay? All of them. Well, we believe this is pointing to the time in history where true Christianity was nearly snuffed out by denominational persecution. And, you know— there's a lot of ways to determine that. You can look at history and say, okay, what happened at this point or that point? But let's realize, in Revelation, when you look at the seven churches that are spoken to in, in the early chapters of Revelation, we look at those seven churches as actually seven chronological stages of the development of the true church. Now, why would we say that? Because if you look at 
how Jesus uh, um, approaches each of those stages, what happens is it is slowly bringing them towards the point of his return. And in, in, in the sixth stage, for instance, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. In the seventh stage, um, uh, you know, um, it says he's there. Or did I, did I, did I confuse that? Seventh stage, anyway, my point is, uh, I guess I should have looked just before the podcast instead of <laughs> previously. The point is in the seventh stage, you see, I, Jesus is standing at the door knocking. In the sixth stage, it says, behold, I come quickly. That's what it is. So you see that you're getting there. Well, let's go back one stage before that to the fifth stage or the fifth church. This is the church of Sardis. So we're going to read from Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you will have a few people in Sardis who have not spoiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, the key point here, Jonathan, therefore, if you do not wake up, all of them were asleep. But he's saying you need to wake up. In verse 5, uh, we see they got drowsy. Yeah. So sleep represents the time of trial for the true church during the dark ages. They didn't have a lot of truth to go on because the false systems didn't speak in their language and there were no Bibles to read. What little truth people did hear, they took to heart, such as God is love, forgive one another, and love your enemies. But when truth was suppressed and hypocrisy was all around them in the false system, they scattered. So, you know, what you have is historically a time when the true followers of Christ were asleep. And interestingly, in the scriptures it says, if you don't wake up, I'll come like a thief. Remember coming like a thief in the night? And, and, but, and then it goes on to say, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not spoiled the garments. They will walk with me in white, chaste, and chosen. Remember? It mm -hmm. just gives you this sense of it's showing us the journey of true Christianity for the last 2,000 years. And in that midpoint, you're asleep. And it's okay because that's, he's showing you what history is going to look like. So the prophetic meaning really is giving us a sense of during history, during the time after Jesus is raised and, you know, ascends unto the Father, and the time that he returns, there's a lot of different things that goes on. One of them is the church does sleep and gets drowsy, but Jesus said, I know it's going to happen, and it's okay, because those wise virgins are prepared, they're mature, as we will see. So, Jonathan, we got the prophetic sense of that. So, what does Jesus want from us on a practical application here? Be patient, steadfast, and alert. Whichever the time of the gospel age any Christian lives in is feast or famine. We are all required to steadfastly recognize and give our lives over to doing only God's will. Be patient, steadfast, and alert. 
that's hard to do, and we can see that the true church has periods of time where it's much harder than others, okay? But from a practical application, we need to walk away from this with the idea of being patient, steadfast, and remaining alert as much as we possibly can. Romans 12, 1 and 2, verses we often quote, are very powerful along these lines. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, Rick, we're living in a different time. We live at the end of the gospel age in the hour of temptation. Our experiences are different from those in the dark ages, but it is the same standard of faithfulness. We have more truth and more prophecies that have been fulfilled than in past generations. We need to still be steadfast and do God's will daily in our lives. And, you know, it's interesting because when you say that, what you're reminding us of is the fact that we are privileged. We really, really, really are privileged. In those dark ages, there was not privilege. There was trial and difficulty and grasping at straws even. But we have so much, which means for us to be steadfast and alert, we have to work really hard to take the privilege and not just say, oh, look at me, I got so much. But to say, look what we have been given. What, have, what do we have to do with this to be faithful to all that we've been given? That, you're right. The same standard of sacrifice applies no matter how much you're given or how little you're given. You still have to have the same standard. Matthew 25, verses 6 through 9, let's continue now with the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us of some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And Rick, uh, we wanted to mention, uh, for more on the topic of Jesus's return, see episodes 797 and 799. Is Jesus really returning? Parts one and two. Yeah, they, they go into a lot of detail on why Jesus returns. You know, we talked about the thief in the night aspect because, you know, there are scriptures that say, well, every eye shall see him. And there's scriptures that say he comes like a thief in the night. Well, which is it? And the answer is both. How is that possible? Listen to those podcasts and find out. Okay, so, you know, it's important to just put that all in perspective. Well, Rick, prophetically, what is Jesus teaching us, and what's the meaning? Okay, so we believe that this is pointing to the manner of Jesus' return as a thief in the night. He goes, he comes at a time where they're not expecting. Behold the bridegroom, this call comes out, and they have to scramble to get ready. Okay, that's an important factor in, 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 in this parable. And the interesting thing is, um, as, as you go through that prophetic point, you also see that the foolish say to the wise, hey, you know, we don't have enough oil, our lamps are going out, you know, they just barely made it to this point, you know, we need some of your oil. And the wise say, I don't have enough for you, I have enough for me, because I was prepared for this, I was mature about this, I, I put things in order. So you have this conversation that reveals the differential between the wise and the foolish, and that's the vessels, the experiences 
of life. So we see the prophetic meaning of the manner of Jesus' return. And let's just touch on that again um, with uh, just to, to reiterate uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 2. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. So we're being taught that his return is hidden and done in secret. It's not obvious to the world. And, you know, that's a really important point. And again, you've got the scriptures that say, well, wait, how can you say that? You know, every eye will see him. But you have to, we have to put the scriptures in context. And when you have scriptures that look like they are completely contradictory, he comes like a thief in the night and every eye shall see him, the student of scripture must look at those scriptures and say, okay, how do these fit together? And when you study it, what you see is how Jesus' return actually works. No time to get into that today, but I will just tell you, it is a fascinating study to watch the unfolding of Jesus' return. I would so love to get into that right this second, but <laughs> we're not going to. It's exciting, I know. <laughs> it is, it is. Okay, so we've, we've touched on the prophetic part and, and the, the conflict here that has risen because some don't have enough oil and some do. Those who were prepared, those who thought ahead, those who were mature, they had enough oil. So what does Jesus want from us? What's his practical application for you and I right here, right now? Well, it's be prepared for action. Faithfulness is not an exercise in convenience. Rather, it is a test of readiness. Faithfulness is never going to be shown in a convenient life. It doesn't, conven, to, to manage a convenient life is to just kind of go along and get along. We have to be ready. That's what faithfulness is, and that's what this parable is showing us. So when we ask the question initially, what does Jesus expect from us? The answer is plenty. He is expecting many things from us that are being brought out in this simple parable that shows the length of time that it takes for him to return. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5 in relation to this preparedness for action. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Rick, usually uh, we think about faith in terms of belief, but faithfulness has to do with action, being ready to do whatever needs to be done. Talks about weapons of warfare. Let me give you a hint. If you're in a battle and you're fully armed, if you don't take out the weapons and use them, you die. It is not about, oh, God will protect me in this battle. No, God protects you by giving you the weapons to fight the battle. Now do your part. Faithfulness is action-based. And how do we do that? The last part of that verse, Jonathan, you read is so powerful. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This is a hard thing. This is a hard thing to do. So we've got that practicality of being prepared for action. Okay? So now let's finish the parable. And, you know, the ending of the parable is kind of tough. Let's look at Matthew 25, verses 10 to 13. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. 
But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. This, this sounds harsh. <laughs> this sounds really harsh. They don't let, he doesn't let them in. Well, why? You know, you know go ahead. Go, go for it. You, you know, you, you can't, you can't have somebody else's experiences cover you. You can't work your way into the kingdom by hiding the shadow of somebody else that you know, by holding on to their, to their coattails and just kind of riding along with them. That's what Jesus is saying doesn't work. We each have to be prepared ourselves. And how about the warning of, um, I'm a part of this denomination, I'm good. Oh, be very careful. Yeah, yeah. You know, I follow this preacher. I'm good. Well, wait, 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 wait. You know, it's about following Christ. Who are we waiting for? The return of Jesus. That's what this parable is about. Waiting for him. Who is our master? It's Jesus. Who is our shepherd? It's Jesus. Who is the one whose sacrifice gave us life? It's Jesus. Well, think about it. The wise ones could not give their Holy Spirit to the foolish. The Holy Spirit comes from God, and it costs something. You're only given more because you can maturely handle it. And, and that's the key. The key here is the idea of the maturity that is important to be able to, to pass on. You can't, if you, if you go through experiences, Jonathan, and I see you grow up in Christ, I can sit here and say, wow, I wish I could be like that. Well, you know what? I could learn from your experiences, but I have to grow into that maturity. I can't just wish for it or like it or say, if I stay close enough to him, maybe I'll be covered too. No, that's why this parable sounds harsh, because each of us must be responsible. So what is Jesus teaching, and what's the prophetic meaning here? Okay, we believe this is showing the difference between those who are more than overcomers and those who simply overcame. Remember that all of these virgins were were part of the waiting process. They all had oil. They all had the lamps. They were all called, and they were all of the chosen ones. Something, though, is different between the two groups. So let's contrast the two groups. First, let's look at Revelation 17, 14 to give a sense of what the wise look like. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. Called, chosen, and faithful. Called, meaning called out of the world to follow after Christ. Chosen, meaning giving God's Spirit as a seal of that promise. Faithful, meaning they have used God's Spirit in their lives to exhibit their obedience. That's what the true church looks like. That's what the wise virgins look like. Now let's contrast that with the called and chosen, but not quite as faithful, 1 Corinthians 3, 14 and 15. If any man's work which he has built on and it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So, Rick, the Apostle Paul is saying even those who suffer loss, like the five foolish virgins, will be saved. Just because they were foolish doesn't mean they will not have life. It means they will not be rewarded, 
with becoming the bride of Christ. And, and there's two sets of scriptures that prove this. Revelation 19, verses 5 through 9, and Revelation 7, verses 13 to 17. And these will be in the bonus material in the CQ Rewind show notes. So this is important to understand, because what we're saying is that the true church is made up of the called, chosen, and faithful. But then you have this other group that are called and chosen. They were given God's Spirit, and they have a measure of faithfulness. Remember, the foolish virgins were there. They showed up. They waited. They, they did almost enough. But like you said, Jonathan, those Revelation Scriptures, which are really, really powerful, and this First Corinthians Scripture shows us that they still have life. So Jesus is using this parable to show us prophetically that just because— You've been given God's Spirit. Just because you've been called out of the world, you've been given God's Spirit, and now you have it dwelling within you, that's still not enough. Your effort is what needs to be put in place. I have to do the work that is put before me. And I have to do the work that is put before me. And every single called and chosen follower of Christ from right after Pentecost until today has to do the work put before them. So we get a sense of the, pra- uh, the, 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 the prophetic aspect, uh, looking at it from the big picture and, and sort of the classes of faithfulness. So what does Jesus want from us here? What's our final practical application? Be acceptable. This is the culmination of all the previous qualities. One cannot just stumble into acceptability. They must live in a way that prepares them for it. You know, you can't go through your life and die and wake up as part of the Bride of Christ and say, whoa, didn't see that coming. (laughs) (laughs) I'm serious. It has got to be a serious daily intention that you have and that you act upon. Does that mean you're always uh, victorious? No. No, no. A just man falls seven times. But rises up again. And that's the story of our lives. To be a wise virgin in this parable, we need to fall down and get up, fall down and get up, and collect in that vessel of our lives the, the, the value of the Holy Spirit and the value of those experiences. So, Jonathan, the practical application, like you said, is to be acceptable. We don't just stumble into things. So let's go a little bit further. So that, that ends this parable. And, you know, the, the parable, like you said, it, it kind of ends on a, on, a, on a kind of a harsh note. But Jesus says, be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. He is not done talking to his followers about preparedness. He's not done talking to them about personal responsibility. You go a little further in Matthew 25, and you can get to the parable of the talents. We're just going to read one verse from that parable, and you see how Jesus' theme is you've got to be on your game with the things you're given. Matthew 25, 21. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things enter into the joy of your master. So you have this sense, well done, good and faithful slave or servant, depending on you know, your translation. You were faithful in a few things. God doesn't overwhelm us with things that we need to be faithful in. He gives us what we can handle. But I will give you charge of many things. 
because you handled those few things as an imperfect human being with my spirit so well. Enter into the joy of your master. That's what the, the, the wise virgins were able to enter into. And it's just a valuable, valuable thing. So Jonathan, as we wrap this up, what did those vessels of sanctified experience, remember the vessels, they were the defining line here, the defining thing between the wise and the foolish. What did those vessels of sanctified experience filled with oil do for the wise virgins? Well, they helped them see. Okay. Very important. Yeah. Okay. First of all, you've got to be able to see because it's dark. Okay. You have to be enlightened. Absolutely. Right. Right. You have to be able to see. What else? It helped them to be seen. And you know what? There's something really important about having the light of God's Word with you where when Jesus approaches in this particular parable, you can be seen by him as one who is prepared and waiting. What else? Well, the vessel with the oil gave them staying power. Because even in the middle of the night when the the original uh, measure of oil had run out, they had the staying power to see it through all the way to the end. It showed them preparedness and foresight. They had to think it through ahead of time. Don't know when he's coming. Better be prepared. Better get my life in order. Better live my life and learn. Here's a, here's a novel thought. Learn from my experiences so I can glorify God through them. And lastly, gave them entrance into the banquet. And there you go. That is a powerful powerful ending. So this parable, Jonathan, is a, is, a, is, a, is a tough sell, if you will, because there's some symbolism that you look at and say, well, you know, I'm not sure. But when you look at other parables, you say, wow, there's a lot to it. And we look at this, and what do we see? We see we're called to be chased. We are called to be chosen. We're called to be equipped. We're called to be energized. We're called to be mature. We're called to be patient, steadfast, and alert. We're called to be prepared for action, and we're called to be acceptable. All of these things are such important parts of what our Christian life is supposed to look like. Not only ours, but every Christian life that's ever been lived from the day of Pentecost up until now has the same expectations. What does Jesus expect from us? A lot. Doesn't matter when you live. Doesn't matter your personal circumstances. Doesn't matter if you're blessed with a lot or blessed with a little or blessed with nothing at all. If you are a begotten soldier of Christ, you have the same level of responsibility, the same level of privilege, and that is what this parable is all about. Let us be ready always. Think about it. Folks, listen. We really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us and review us. We'd greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, (laughs) next week, can Bible strategies resolve serious conflicts? Part one. You know why there's part one? Because there's a lot to talk about with serious conflicts and how Bible strategies can change your life. We'll talk to you then.